Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Welcome back, Bible Center family. Thank you so much for being with us today online and on TV. It's a privilege uh, to worship the Lord with you. Uh, If you're new, I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor here at Bible Center. I would love to meet you next time our paths cross. Uh, We like to say that we're a a family expecting guests. And so uh, if you're a guest, our goal is to help uh, connect you as a friend. And so again, thank you for joining us uh, on TV or online. I want to invite you and all who are with us today to take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 is where we're going to be looking today, Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Here's today's big idea. Let's go ahead and just jump right in. Today's big idea is the truest thing about you is what God says about you. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. What we're talking about today is identity. Specifically, we're talking about a Christian identity. And so by way of a caveat, I want to mention that most of this message is for those of us who follow Jesus, who consider ourselves Christians. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to urge you, I want to to beg you to repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's good news that, yes, God created all things, But even though sin broke all things, Jesus came to save all things. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to save us. Jesus came to transform us. Jesus wants to restore you. And so there really are only two categories of people in the New Testament. There are believers and unbelievers, Jesus followers and non-Jesus followers, sheep, Jesus said, and goats, forgiven and unforgiven, saved, unsaved, transforming and not transforming. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so, but Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, being, being buried, rising again the third day, He offers eternal life. He offers forgiveness of sin. He offers everything we're about to talk about today. And so if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, do that. Trust Christ. Give your heart to Christ. But the rest of the message is for Christians, for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus. Thankfully, the gospel changes everything about us. We are radically and eternally changed by the work of Jesus. Now, our character is progressively transformed, but the moment we put our faith in Christ, we are instantly, positionally transformed into the family of God. Our identity becomes Christian. That is our core identity. Now, the book of Ephesians that we're going to read from in a moment is all about our identity in Christ. Paul, the writer, 2,000 years ago, wanted the early church to see right away as new young believers that their identity was wrapped up in union with Christ. 
And so most of Paul's letters, Paul wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, most of Paul's letters, the first half, were about doctrine, about how we are positionally in Christ, the great doctrines of Christ in the church. And the last half of most of Paul's letters were the practical matters, about what we should, how we should then live. I remember as a new Christian, I always wanted to skip ahead to the last part of Paul's letters. The first part of Paul's letters kind of bored me, right? Like, let me just skip over this doctrine stuff and let me get to the good stuff. I can remember having specific thoughts, even about the book of Ephesians. I don't want to know all these truths. Just let me get to what I'm supposed to do. But I've since learned as I've grown in Christ that I'll never, be, I'll never do what I'm supposed to do until I know who I really am. And that's why I'm saying today that the truest thing about you is what God says about you. So why is this message so important? Why is the topic of Christian identity so important? Well, I personally feel that the world is eating our lunch or eating us for lunch in terms of this subject of identity. The world has turned up the volume so much on the subject of identity, particularly political identity, social identity, gender identity, sexual identity, ethnic identity, and even online identity, that we as Christians, by and large, we now are afraid of the topic of identity. I've been especially burdened of late to see the identities that the world is trying to stick on our children and our grandchildren, let alone all of us. But the identities that the world is trying to stick to our kids, it blows my mind. I do not remember, and I'm sure it was there, but I don't remember having grown up where there's this much social pressure to form or conform into a certain identity. The identity threat that I'm talking about today is greater than any Russian fisher, any imposter posing as the deposed prince of Nigeria, or any hacker from China. The identity thieves I'm going after today are far more different, difficult to detect. Pride, commercials, Netflix, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, parental pressure, success, disappointment, failure, the devil... Aging, bereavement, and even religion can play a role in stripping us of our core identity. And so I want to ask you today, if you were going to take out a piece of paper and write down your core identity in Christ, what would you write down? Or just your core identity in general, what would you write down? How would you answer the question, who am I? Who am I? I. Our answer to that question impacts everything else in life. It impacts our self-image, our roles. It impacts our health. It impacts our ethics, spirituality, relationship, career, life story. Whether we know it or not, consciously or subconsciously, every day we are actually answering that question by how we live out our lives. Every day we design or build or act out an identity by the way we intentionally or accidentally think about ourselves and the image by which we want other people to see us. And so again, I'll ask you, how do you see yourself? 
How do you view yourself? What is your core identity? I know Christians who have felt that their core identity is something like adulterer. Because of mistakes they've made in their past, they somehow say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I am an adulterer. And so they label themselves with that horrible title. I know Christians who have labeled themselves as failures, maybe because of a bad decision that they made in their past, or maybe because of circumstances out of their control. They lost a business, had to file bankruptcy, or, or did something that they have since regretted. I can understand that, but that's not our core identity. Sometimes we think our core identity as Christians is sinner or nobody. Or sometimes we identify ourselves with good things. We attach good things to our core identity. During this week, as I've been meditating on the message, I've been thinking about lesser identities, ways that if I'm not careful, I can actually identify myself to the wrong proportion. Here's some ways that I could identify myself. I'm a husband, a father, a son, a brother, a friend, a heterosexual male, 10th generation West Virginian, Charlestonian, St. Albans raised, seminary graduate, ordained minister, Bible Center 6th lead pastor. I'm a Myers-Briggs INFJ, which I've learned is actually the rarest form of Myers-Briggs, INFJ. I'm an Enneagram 3, and I either wing 2 or I wing 4. I feel like I still, at age 41, have no idea. My family and friends are trying to help me figure it out. I'm an encourager, an advocate, a camper, a kayaker, a hiker, a reader, a beginner golfer, a dog person, a movie lover, a beach lover, a Leonard Skinner fan, Hashimoto's or hypothyroid sufferer, anxiety recovery, COVID-19 survivor, a Honda truck driver, a mapaholic, a peanut butter blizzardaholic, a diet Mountain Dew-aholic, an Israel enthusiast, a Charles Spurgeon admirer, a four-time marathoner who's now a walker, a blogger, a Reds fan, a Steelers fan, a Bulls fan, a Mountaineer fan, now a Marshall fan that our daughter Katie's going to Marshall. I'm by nature an introvert, and I'm an extreme, extreme sufferer of foot-in-mouth disease, constantly putting my foot in my mouth. Those are ways that you could identify me. But none of those ways are my core identity. Those are descriptors, but they don't get to the heart. I've met elderly Christians who have held on to identity markers from their youth. Names that they may have been called over 50 years ago, that they still look at themselves in the mirror every day and think of themselves in this way. We laugh at it, but kids can be cruel. They look at themselves some 50, 60 years later and still hear the name Porky or Fatty or Dumbo or Stupid or Pizza Face, and the list could go on and on. But you know, the truth is adults can be just as cruel. And really what I'm learning is we can be very, very cruel to ourselves. And so in the next few minutes, I'm going to invite you to go on a journey with me and discover your true identity. If you're a follower of Christ, I want you to discover your core identity. And may this help you reset this summer as you walk with Christ. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. So what does God say about you? 
Let's look together at verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. After a short greeting in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I've highlighted here the word blessing or blessed. Why don't you see number one, if you're taking notes or you're following along on the app, that your identity, first of all, you can tell yourself, I am blessed. I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Have you seen that bumper sticker, too blessed to be stressed? You ever see that? I kind of like that, actually. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Makes me smile. But when I think about this idea of being too blessed to be stressed, this is not just because uh, we have good family or good friends or we have a house or a job or our favorite NASCAR driver won last week. That's not what this is about. This is every spiritual blessing in Christ. All the favor, all the love, all the access that Jesus had to God the Father, according to the verses we're going to read today, actually you have that same access, favor, and love with God the Father as well if you're a Jesus follower. Remember at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son and whom I am well pleased. Actually, the, almost the whole of the New Testament teaches us that we, as Jesus' followers, share in that same position in Christ. God is not always pleased in what we do, but He is always pleased with who we are. You can say to yourself, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Secondly, you can say to yourself, I am am chosen. I am chosen. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, sometimes we read passages like this and we think to ourselves, that's really, really deep. And it is. It's really, really deep. But really, let's think of it like this. As we read verses 4 and 5, let's think of it like this. Think of it like a little boy swimming out in the ocean, maybe 20 yards. And the little boy says, Daddy, the ocean is deep. Well, yeah, it's deep to him because it's seven feet deep where he's swimming. But you might tell that little boy, oh, son, it's deep but it gets a whole lot deeper. And the same is true with God. What we're talking about, Ephesians 1, is, is deep, but let us not be scared of the mystery that we find in the Scriptures. God's Word depicts a grand and glorious God that we will never fully be able to understand. But before the world was ever created, God knew you and loved you. There was never a time when God did not know you or love you if you're a Jesus follower. For as long as God has been in existence from eternity past, He has known you, cherished you, planned to create you, planned to redeem and save you. Jesus taught this same exact thing as we see in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus taught that the sheep never seek the shepherd. The shepherd always seek the sheep. Let's look at the words of Jesus and take his word for it. 
John 6, 37. All those the Father gives me, these are the words of Christ, maybe in red in your Bible, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Later in John 6, in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite pastors who uh, about 150 years ago in London uh, was really ahead of his time in so many ways. But I love what Spurgeon writes about this issue. He says, I have no questions that God chose me because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. He goes on to say, and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I feel like I am forced to accept this doctrine. David Jeremiah is a popular teacher in California and really around the world, someone highly respected by many in our church family. And I like what David Jeremiah recently said on this issue. He said, the subject of God's choosing immediately raises questions. But after a thorough study of the subject of God's choosing, I can safely tell you what it means. God chose us. If words have meaning, and they do, then that is what the Bible means when it says, He chose us in Him. He's talking about Ephesians 1. No one can comprehend or explain how or why some were chosen and others were not. It is a mystery. All we can say is that God's choosing is a matter of His wisdom and grace and rejoice if we find ourselves among the chosen. Now, I'll ask you, how does this make you feel? How does this make you feel? You say, Pastor, I'm confused. I don't quite understand it. Well, I would encourage you to dig deeply and continue to meditate and read through Ephesians 1. But let me give you some pastoral encouragements. This isn't part of the sermon. This is free. But let me give you some pastoral encouragements. Number one, just trust the Bible even when you don't understand the Bible. Trust the Bible even when you don't understand the Bible. Number two, trust the Bible more than you trust your systems. Trust the Bible more than you trust your systems. You see, every theological system is broken. Occasionally, people will ask me, what is your theological system? And I'm so careful because no matter what system you put your pigeonhole yourself into, somewhere that system breaks down. And so let's just believe the Bible. We don't need to add any more labels to it. But the third thing I want to encourage you to do, if you're struggling with what does this mean, uh, what does this passage mean, I want to encourage you uh, in this way. And that is, worship the Lord even when you don't understand the Lord. Worship the Lord even when you don't understand the Lord. You see, for thousands of years in human history, Followers of Jesus, followers of God, and even those who didn't know Jesus but knew that there was some creator, some force above them, had this, we call it pre-modern reverence for God. But several hundred years ago, when we began to think that we could put God in a test tube, then all of a sudden it, it lost its majesty to worship the Lord. All of a sudden we felt like if we don't understand it, we don't have to believe it. But the truth is, I don't want to worship a God I can fully understand. 
I don't want to serve a God I can fully comprehend. I want to worship a God who is King of kings and Lord of lords and blows my mind every time. So let me encourage you, worship the Lord even when you don't understand the Lord. After a worship service once, somebody asked me, Matt, do you believe that you contributed anything to your salvation? And I answered quickly, yes, I do believe that I contributed a lot to my salvation. A lot of sin. That's the only thing I contributed to my salvation was a lot of sin. Jesus did all the saving. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you can tell yourself, I am blessed and I am chosen. Number three, you can tell yourself, I am holy and blameless in God's sight. It says in Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. The Bible doesn't say that we were holy and blameless, so He saved us. But rather it says that He saved us, He chose us, He called us before the foundation of the world, sin and all, to make us holy and blameless. The word holy or holy one is often translated in our Bible the word saint. Over 60 times in the New Testament, you as a Christian are called a saint. When God the Father sees you, he sees you just as righteous as Jesus Christ. This idea of sainthood being reserved for the select few has no foundation anywhere in the Holy Scriptures. You as a Christian are a saint, the New Testament says. If you're a follower of Jesus, that may not always be your practice. That's definitely not always my practice. But thank God it is always our position. You can tell yourself, I am holy and blameless in God's sight. Number four, you can tell yourself, I am loved. In verse four, at the very end of verse four, we find these two words, in love. And then he launches into verse 5 that we'll see again in a moment. But these two words, uh, uh, most believe that whenever they were putting the chapters and verses together, which by the way, the verse numbers and chapter numbers are man-made, not God-ordained. Most translators now believe that in love probably should have been part of verse 5 because he's about to say all that he did in love. But this love is a particular kind of love. And I meet Christians all the time who struggle believing that God truly loves them. I want to share a verse with you that means a lot to me. When I'm struggling to believe that God loves me, one of my mentors pointed this verse out, and I want to point it out to you. Some of you need to memorize this and and keep this close at hand in your phone. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Psalm 139, 17. Even when you don't feel it, even when you don't believe it fully, look to the Word of God because it tells you, you are loved. Number five, you can tell yourself, I am adopted. I am adopted. In verses four and five, he continues, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Adoption means that we weren't part of God's family, but he made us part of his family. 
In the verses we just read, he even answers the question about why he adopted us. He adopted us according to his pleasure and will. The way we would say that today in 2021, we would say God adopted us because he enjoyed it. God adopted us because he enjoyed it. He enjoyed bringing you into his family and he enjoys giving you the security of knowing you are his child. When we adopted Caden back last August, almost a year ago, this is our son Caden from this past Christmas, one of my favorite pictures of him just being ornery. Uh, when we adopted Caden, there was a certain sense of, uh, of insecurity. Insecurity. He had had a, a wonderful grandma who took such great care of him and raised him until we adopted him. And we're so thankful for her. But there was just this insecurity. New parents, new life. Is this adoption thing really going to last? And, and so we would show him the adoption paperwork in the file every so often. He would ask, Dad, can I see, can I see my adoption paper? He just wants to see the paper. And so Sarah and I did something just last week that really encouraged him. Uh, we got a safe deposit box at our bank. And we put the adoption papers in our safe deposit box, along with some other things, the birth certificates of our girls and some other things. We put it all in the safe deposit box. Now, you want to talk about somebody feeling secure. Caden feels secure. He thinks, he's like, Dad, not even missiles could blow up our bank, right? Not even missiles could get in that vault. I'm like, I, I might lie, right? It's like... No, son, not even, not even missiles. I don't think missiles will ever come to our bank. And so I just want him to feel secure that that adoption is final. He is in our family. And you can feel secure no matter what you've done before you were a Christian or after you were a Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can say to yourself, I am adopted. Number six, you can say to yourself, I am a trophy of God's grace. I'm a trophy of God's grace. We see this in verse number six, seven, and eight. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. This phrase, if you're taking notes or if you underline in your Bible or in your Bible app, this phrase, to the praise of His glorious grace, is repeated over and over again in the book of Ephesians. Sometimes it's phrased, to the praise of His glory. God did not choose us because we were lovely. We are lovely because God chose us. God chose us by grace. If somebody asks you, why are you saved? Why did God save you? You can just shake your head and say, I don't know, except to be a trophy of his grace. You can say to yourself, number seven, I am redeemed and forgiven. I am redeemed and forgiven. Verse seven says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. If you're a child of God, Jesus purchased your salvation with his blood at his death. He redeemed you. Redemption, that word is used all the way back in the Old Testament book of Exodus. It means to be bought out of slavery. In Exodus, we see that God the Father buys slaves out of slavery and begins to call them a family 
sons and daughters. What did the Israelites do when they were brought out of the slavery of Egypt? They put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And what did the Apostle Paul have in mind here? He had in mind a second exodus that has happened through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. You can tell yourself, I am redeemed and I am forgiven. How much forgiveness of sin do we have? Well, he's going to tell us it was lavished on us. Redemption, forgiveness, salvation was lavished on us. Now, when I think about the word lavished, I like to think about Dairy Queen. My favorite blizzard, and on the diet that I'm on, it's been several weeks since I've had one, and this picture makes me want to have one tonight. If there's a, sometime today or tonight, if, the, if it's still open, this idea of this blizzard, I like lavished with uh, Reese peanut butter cups. When I go through a Dairy Queen, I ask for extra Reese peanut butter cups. Now, I've never actually used the word lavished with the person at Dairy Queen, but I could. Matter of fact, I might try that. I might just say lavish my blizzard with extra peanut butter cups. That's the idea here. It's a a descriptive word. God lavished us with salvation. He lavished you with forgiveness. You can say to yourself, I am redeemed and forgiven. Number eight, you can say to yourself, I am united with Christ. I am united with Christ. Look with me at verse eight again. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven or on earth earth under Christ. What is the mystery of God? When we see the word mystery used in the New Testament, he's not talking about something in this case that we can't understand. But he's talking about something in the Old Testament that was unknown, but now is known in the New Testament. So a mystery in the book of Ephesians refers to something that was unknown in the Old Testament, but now is known in the New Testament. In eternity past, the Father purposed to choose and bless a covenant family. In Genesis 12, we see that this started with the physical family of Abraham. Now through Jesus, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures. And in Jesus, we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says that grace has opened up a way for us to understand every other part of our lives. And so in Ephesians 1.10, he says that God's purpose has always been to unify everything in heaven and on earth under the Messiah, under Jesus Christ. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings that are unified in Jesus, the Messiah. We can see this event starting in Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament when God begins to save a people from all the nations. And so God's goal for the church has never been for us to be alike. God's goal for the church is for us to be unified in Christ. 
That's why God brings people like us together. People who don't vote alike. People who don't think alike. People who don't vacation alike. People who don't eat alike. People who don't drink alike. He brings us together. We may not have anything else in common, but we have the gospel in common. We're united in Christ. You can tell yourself, I am united with Christ. Number nine, you can tell yourself, I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Now think with me just for a moment. Think with me about how you were saved. Christian, think about your conversion to Jesus Christ. Someone shared the gospel with you, perhaps. Maybe you read the gospel at some point. But you became convicted of your sin. You saw that you had offended a holy, perfect God. And that even though he created you, sin had broken you. But yet you realize that all of God's judgment, all of God's justice was, was put on Jesus. You, you believed in the, not just the myth of Jesus, but the person of Jesus the person and work of Jesus who lived in, born in Bethlehem, walked the dusty roads of Israel, that died on a cross in Jerusalem. You put your faith and trust in, in that Jesus, that great teacher, the God of very gods, the God who died on a cross, was buried and rose again. And then you, in that moment, something happened to you. Sometimes it was perceived, sometimes not so obvious. But the Bible says something happened to you. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The imagery here is that of a king. A king would take hot wax and take his ring and make his stamp, insignia, in the wax to say you have been sealed with a seal that cannot be destroyed. And this is the imagery here. This is what your salvation looks like from God's perspective. Because of the Holy Spirit, you are sealed until the day of redemption. You can say to yourself, I am sealed with the Spirit. There's one last identity that we've got to look at. The last identity, we see it again in verse 14, and that is, you can tell yourself, I am God's. I am God's. This might be my favorite. I am God's. In verse 14, he says this, you are God's possession. You are God's. I remember as a kid going to my dad's shop. My dad was a mechanic for years. Going into my dad's shop, and there were all the other mechanics. And my dad saying, this is my boy. This is my son. I can remember the, the smell of the grease in the auto mechanic shop. I, I can remember the smell of the soap. I can remember getting popsicles that my dad would get me from the ice cream truck that seemed to come by always when I was there. But it was, it was awesome to know that I was Rick's boy. And I want you to know today that you are God's possession. That is your identity. Which brings us back to our big idea. The big idea of all things. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. Not what you think and not what you feel. So here's what I want you to do today. 
Remind yourself every day of your true identity in Christ. Remind yourself every day of your true identity in Jesus. There's a lot of ways you can do this. It might be, again, just a reminder on your phone. It might be a note card or a post-it note that you put on your bathroom mirror or in your car. It might be that you, you've been looking for something to read for your Bible time. It might be that you start reading the book of Ephesians every day for a month. There's only six chapters. You remind yourself who you are in Christ. It might be that you do something more creative than I'll ever be. Maybe you make a sign or a plaque or a picture. You might even tattoo the, all that I've said today. You might tattoo those 10 points to your arm. Whatever it is for you, do whatever helps you remember that you belong to Christ. Just don't allow the world to give you an identity. Don't allow your temptations to be your identity. Don't allow people to give you an identity. Don't allow your failures and don't allow your successes. As a Jesus follower, your identity, your core identity, isn't sinner. Have we sinned? Yes. But that's not our core identity. As a Jesus follower, your core identity is an alcoholic, drug addict, some sexual preference, whether or not you're poor, whether or not you're rich. Those aren't your identities. You see, the truest thing about you is what God says about you. Now, you've noticed today that I'm wearing a shirt I don't normally wear. There's a lot of different false identities on my shirt, there's sinner and failure. There's a has-been and alone and loser and, what does this one say, a disaster. Maybe your shirt has a lot of other identities on it. What would you be tempted to put on your shirt? What label have you been carrying around maybe all of your life? What I want to encourage you to do today is take off those false identities Take off the false identities. Hey, for that matter, throw it away if you want. Burn it if you want to. Whatever it is, get rid of your false identities. And instead, put on the identities that we looked at today. Remember that you are blessed. Remember that you are chosen. Remember that you are God's. Remember that you are holy and blameless in His sight. Remember that you belong to Him. You say, Matt, why is this so important? Why, is this, why does this matter? It matters because the truest thing about you is what God says about you. Imagine what it would do for your life if you knew this was your identity. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media.